So Kyle, man, thanks for carving out some time to chat today. It is a pleasure to be here, Josh. I'm super excited. You're doing some really interesting things. <laughs> I try to. Yeah, I try to. Um, you know, I've I made a pledge recently to respond to every single cold email that I get from a human, not from marketing automation, from a human. And uh, it's been an interesting adventure. What prompted you to make that pledge? Like I've heard of people doing this thing where they run four miles and then they wait like an hour and then they run another four miles and they do it for like four days. I've heard of stuff like that. I've heard of climbing mountains. I've heard of marathons, but I've not heard of anyone pledging to review every single cold mail cold email that lands in their inbox. So so unpack that for me a little bit. So uh, prior to my change of mindset here, I had reserved my responses for the people who really nailed it, who used principles that they learned from you or some other guru. And they wrote something personalized to me based on the information they could find about me. And I wanted to reward them for their effort. But what I, when I was starting to think about this, I was aggrieved that I was still receiving so many bad emails and I was responding only to the good ones. I was like, wait a second, I'm not helping the people who actually need it most. Like, yes, I'm helping from a quota standpoint, giving meetings to those people who need the meetings, but I'm not giving feedback to the people who really could benefit from it. So it was a little change of mindset on my side to say, you know what? I know a lot of times they didn't even write these emails. I know a lot of times this feedback may just end up in the ether and not get acted upon, but for the ones who listen and for the ones who take action, maybe I can make them better. You sound like the type of guy that really cares about people. That's my main animating motion or mission uh, with respect to everything that I do on LinkedIn is I want to help as many people as I can. I know, you know how hard this job is and I want to do whatever I can just to make it a little bit easier to give people a different perspective that maybe they're not getting. And I've been in this sales development, account exec, sales enablement orbit for eight years now. I've learned a thing or two along the way. And it would be somewhat selfish of me, I think, to keep all these principles just in under under this roof. And so broadcasting it widely has been helpful for folks. So I, I intend to continue. So have you always been this way? like the type of guy that cares and that likes to help people and teach? I would say yes, Josh. I think um, <laughs> I joke about being a middle child and that being one of the main things that uh, makes me so well suited for this life in sales development, being right between the big brother of sales and the little brother of marketing and trying to be the one who can mediate between them. So yeah, I think I was trained to, to be this mediator at an early age, and it's extended into my professional career. I'm not a middle child. What is it about being a middle child? Oh, there's always, I always became the person, you know, the, the, the youngest one gets away with everything. <laughs> and the oldest one is a, is, is a little bit um, typically more, well, at least in my, in my family, a little more stubborn, a little kind of on their own. And so they're always kind of at odds with one another. So therefore, I kind of in the middle ground there, you know, I wasn't the first one. I never got used to having the, all the attention like the oldest one did. And I'm not the littlest one, so I'm not getting all the attention now, but I know what each of them are going through and I can identify with each of them and help them. So that's the mindset, I think. I don't know if it translates to other middle children out there, but it certainly was my experience growing up. If, if you are a middle child and you would like to join the middle child group, I think Kyle is going to spin one of those up. I'm sure there's a Slack channel or there's definitely a clubhouse event for middle children. There's a clubhouse <laughs> event for everything. So, everything. so Kyle, something else that I wanted to ask you about before we delve into your work is how did you learn how to coach? Because that's very different than having the skill, right? So having the skill and knowing the domain expertise is one thing, but then being able to coach and to teach it in a way that's loving and caring and clear is another thing. I think a lot of people take explanation for granted. It's just something we think we can do. Um, but unless we realize that it's actually a skill that we can improve, we sort of run the risk of explaining things in ways that are confusing to people. So how did you sharpen that ax? That is really well said, Josh, and it's a really important realization. And I learned the absolute hardest way you can learn, which is by trying and failing. And so my first leadership role on an SDR team as a team lead and then as a manager, I thought that the most uh, effective way to coach people was to try and make everybody do things the same exact way that I did things. Try and, and say, hey, I did this role. I know what I'm doing. I found success. So if I can create a team of mini-me's, we're going to be successful. And what I didn't realize at the time, and I realize now, is it sounds so obvious, but 
every person is a unique person. Every person has a different uh, intrinsic set of intrinsic motivators. Everybody has a different skill set. Everybody excels at a certain thing and is not so good at another thing. And so my job as a manager, my job as a coach, as a teacher is to understand people's strengths and weaknesses, ensure that the team understands everybody's individual strengths and weaknesses, and truly then operates as a team. So if one person is really great on the phone and one person is really great at email, they need to work together to build each other's skill sets. And I need to identify that about them so that I can best coach them to, to give them something that's actually going to be meaningful and impactful. And then to your point, do it in a way that's empathetic. Do it in a way that shows them that I care, that shares the context behind why I'm coaching them the way I am and not just directing them to do something for the sake of doing something, but really ensuring that they know how this directive is related to something that matters to them, whether that's quota attainment or career advancement, career development, whatever it may be. The context behind the directive is super important. Yeah. One of the things that I observed about your style in reading it on LinkedIn, and I haven't had the pleasure of working you with you personally, but one of the things I'm, I noticed pretty quickly was that you're using a lot of positive reinforcement rather than telling people all the things they do wrong, which you could always spend all day doing. Um, you really build people up um, in a way that the feedback feels positive and uplifting. Is that intentional? How did you learn that? Tell me more about that. Have you found that that motivates people more than telling people what not to do? I, I have found that, Josh. Yeah. And I know you talk a lot about the right ways to persuade and the right ways to influence. And it's very hard to persuade and influence by immediately coming out of the gate and telling somebody they're wrong. You, you lose them immediately. You know, I, I think about times when people have tried to coach me that way and they were probably right. I was probably doing something wrong, but I wasn't going to listen to them because my shield went up as soon as that type of feedback starts to hit the floor. I think that it's far more useful and beneficial to, and easy, I should say for the recipient to emulate what's good versus try and correct what's wrong, if that distinction makes sense. And so I always try and spotlight the good things or turn something negative into a, have a positive spin on it so that it's, it's just received more. And people aren't as defensive as uh, when they're reading this and they can take action on it. That's the other really important thing is I try and be really specific and really actionable because if all they do is just change that one little thing, it can make a huge difference. And then they're more open to changing larger things in the future. Yeah, I found that too. I used to teach elementary school and I'd have these five-year-olds and what I would try to do all the time is get them to put their crayons away after art. And when I first started teaching, I was basically yelling at them. It's like, will you please put your crayons away? Please put your crayons away. Please put your crayons away. Put the lid on. And it just wasn't working. And my teacher mentor said to me, you're, you're doing it wrong. He goes, let me show you how to do it. And he came in, his name was Jim Wade. And this is exactly what he said. I'll never forget it. Even though it was, God, 15 years ago, he said, I love the way Kylie is putting her crayons away. And she even put the lid on. Look how Ben arranged his crayons. All the browns are together and all the greens. Wow, I really like how Ben's doing that. And what ended up happening ultimately is all the kids in the classroom were like looking at what Ben and Kylie were doing and they started doing it. And my mind was kind of blown at that because it, it is a little counterintuitive. That is brilliant. And did you ever at any point feel manipulative when you were doing that, Josh? No, because I got the desired behavior that I wanted and the students actually took it better and were in a better mood and were happier. And I, I think I, I do agree with you. The bosses that I've worked for that have motivated me in a positive way, I've been much more motivated to work for than managers that I've worked with that have done the opposite of it. You know, the, the sort of carrot works better with me than, than the stick. And I certainly see that coming through in, in your approach as well, which is hard to do with the written word. I think our inclination as people, and I see this a lot on LinkedIn, um, I, I call these uh, swoopers and poopers, people that come and poop on things and then kind of go away. But I think our inclination as humans is to be negative. Um, why do you think that is? Why is that our default or a lot, not your default, but why is it the default for so many people? Oh boy, you're testing the psychology major in me uh, with this question. Uh, I think people really don't like to be wrong. I think it's as simple as that. If somebody feels like they're doing something, they're doing something for a reason. They have their own reasons. And if you 
try and come at them and, and tell them that they're wrong and you're, you're really negative about it or overbearing about it. Or um, if you challenge them in the wrong way, it can make them dig deeper into the position that they had previously. Versus if you come to them through an empathetic lens, a supportive lens, a way that shows them that you really care about them, that you understand what matters to them. Uh, it's just much more, I find it to be much more effective and it kind of breaks through that shell and it shows them that I'm not asking you to do this for the sake of asking you or because I feel like it's the, it's the way that worked for me, for example. I'm asking you to do this because I know it's what it takes for you to be successful. You're already really good. You're 90% of the way there. If we can get this other 10% of the way there and it's just a little, it's tweaks of phrasing. It's spacing things out differently. It's changing word choices here. It's, it's changing the intro. It's the subject line. It's these little things that add up. Your understanding of the concepts is great. Your communication about the concepts needs work. And that's what I'm here for. Um, so it's just about framing. You're a little young to maybe remember this guy, but there was a guy on PBS like in the mid 80s. I think he went to like the early 90s called Bob Ross. Yes. And you know, Bob Ross, he had that show, The Joy of Painting. And so this guy, for the uninitiated that are listening, he would get on TV and in a real calm voice, he would like paint these beautiful landscapings, but he taught you how to paint by actually painting. And when I looked at the work that you're doing, Kyle, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Bob Ross in that you're actually demonstrating and showing rather than telling. Because I think telling people what to do in an email doesn't quite hit you as much as actually showing you how to paint the trees. Was that your intent when you were coming up with this idea to critique the emails to rather than do what most sales leaders do, myself included, is this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, is to actually demonstrate it like a Bob Ross style? Love Bob Ross. I'm very happy to be compared to him. He is <laughs> mesmerizing. For those of you who, as Josh said, for the uninitiated, if you're having a hard time falling asleep, <laughs> I recommend, and it's not to say that it's boring. It's to say that it's very soothing. The way that the, his voice is very calm and the picture always comes together. And it's just a really nice way to wade off into a dream space. That is a conversation for a different day. Um, yeah, I, I always want to show people, I, I want to put my money where my mouth is. And this is true with my social presence. It's true with the way that I try and lead the team here internally at Clary. I, I never want to ask people to do something that I wouldn't be comfortable doing myself. And it's not to say that I'm better at writing emails than certainly the folks on our team who are a cut above. I'm, I'm not better at, you know, handling objections on the phone, but I'm willing to do it. And I'm willing to put myself out there for the same kind of criticism that I hope that they'll be receptive to that I'm giving them. And it levels the playing field. And our titles may not match and our level of seniority and our years of experience may not match, but the output matches. And that's apples to apples. And if we can get on the same page about that, then there's mutual respect. And we, we understand each other, we care about each other, and we're more likely, therefore, I think, to listen to each other. Let me tell you something that I struggle with that I want to get your take on along these lines of, of showing people how to do things and modeling it. I'd love to get your take on this. So when I was first starting as a sales trainer and coach, I went to this company um, uh, out, did like a sales kickoff. And one of the things I asked during the sales kickoff is, hey, raise your hand if you've ever had a prospect ghost you. And of course, every single hand goes up. And I said, okay, I want you to pull that person up on the CRM. There was like 50 or 60 people in the room. And I'm just going to go down the list and I'm going to take out my phone and I'm going to call them and I'm going to show you what to do in this situation, right? And everyone's like, they're not going to pick up. They're not going to pick up. P.S. The first person, they have a camera crew filming me the whole thing. First person picks up, I get on the phone and to make a very long story short, we're able to turn that conversation into a, into a meeting for the rep and the guy freaked out. He's jumping up and down. And I thought that was really cool at first because I was watching the video. I'm like, wow, look how awesome I am like, that I did this in front of a crowd and I demonstrated it. But then I started thinking about it a little bit more. And my coach told me, you know, you're not really the hero here. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to make the other person the hero, the rep. What you should have done is coached it and then had the reps actually make the calls and film them. Like you want to you wanna coach the player, not take the shot. And so when I ask you, Kyle, about your approach here, how do you sort of toe the line between doing it and then being the coach? that enables other people to do it. Because ultimately, it's not really about how you can do it. It's about what your team can do. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's uh, give somebody a meeting and they hit quota for the day, teach somebody to get meetings <laughs> and they hit quota for a lifetime. Um, you're exactly right. I think, there's, uh, there's, I think there's a time and a place for both though, Josh. 
uh, especially as you're training an internal team or leading a team internally, where you have to put yourself out there and show your team, again, the, the same principle that I just said, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. It's really, really important. It's not to say that I'm going to sit here and make 100 cold calls today, but I'll make the one. I'll make the five, whatever it is. I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'll jump in a role play with you right now and do some objection handling. I'll join your spiff. I'll join your contest. Like that kind of thing, I think goes a long way for camaraderie, for morale, for, for leadership. I really think that's servant leadership. Um, but your point is spot on, which is that can't be all that happens because ultimately you need them not just modeling the behavior and understanding the behavior. You need them doing the behavior. And the best way to, to, to learn, to truly learn is to do. And so I think there's a balance of both, but I, I would say probably more so a more, a disproportionate amount of that balance belongs on them doing the work. Yeah. I love what you said there. Cause I, I do think. And I've been in these situations too, where you get these orders from management, but they're actually so far removed from it that they don't have any credibility. Right. So when, like when you first start and you're like in there with them, I would imagine that forms a very close bond because you're like, Hey, Kyle's in the pit with us. He's, he's picking up the phone. He's getting torpedoed also. It, it, it totally does, Josh. It makes it, it makes you less of a figurehead <laughs> and it makes you more of a human. It personalizes you. And inevitably, you will mess up. I will mess up in a role play, on a cold call, whatever it is. And that's that kind of vulnerability is humanizing. And then I ask for feedback and I take the feedback and I show people that I'm just as open to coaching as I want them to be. And so it's that kind of level playing field, as we've said here, that I think really makes a productive relationship between some sort of mentor and mentee. I love that. All right, let's get into some of the work that you're doing with regards to these cold email teardowns, and you're doing a ton of them. Um, what are some themes that you're seeing with regards to common things that people are doing that might not be in their best interest? <laughs> a very diplomatic to way nicely, to say it nicely. Okay, things that people are doing that suck, that are just really bad, that they should stop doing. So what, what are there's some, a couple. Are you, some are you seeing some themes? Definite, definite themes, Josh, and none of them will be surprising to you because I know you harp on these a lot. The number one thing that's super easy to fix is the length of your email. And I think a lot of times what people do, and I posted about this recently in a little more depth, but a lot of times what people do when they're writing outbound email copy is they say, hey, look, a lot of this work's already been done for me. I'm just going to go to my website. I'm going to go to clary.com. I'm going to go to the about us section and there's my email. And then your outbound email reads like a marketing pitch. And that's not what an outbound email should be. First of all, it's going to be way too long. Uh, and what, what's your recommendation, Josh, on email length? How many words or characters? Three to four sentences. Three to four sentences. What's that? No more than what? 70, 80 words? Somewhere in there. Yeah, be. somewhere in there. Yeah, that's where I am too. I think if there's an extra, I allow, allow, I recommend for uh, up to about 125 if there's really good personalization. But if there's not personalization, if it's more of a, a templated uh, kind of thing, then I think, yeah, that 50 to 100 word range is perfect. But a lot of people are nowhere near that. And a lot of it is because they're just stealing language from their website and they're hoping that it works in an outbound sort of format. It's interesting. They're stealing language from their website, right? And so one of the things that I've talked about and would love to get your take on this is that you don't want to write like you talk. You want to write like your customer talks. And so if you want to write like how your customer talks, you shouldn't be on your website. You should be on your customer testimonial videos or case studies. And to the extent possible, lift language in quotes about results that your customers are achieving. So, so by way of example, I was just looking at the, you know, uh, clarity IQ uh, team. So, one of the problems that sales leaders have when they pay commissions is it takes a long time if they got a big team, the different commission structures, it's labor intensive, they're copying and pasting stuff into Google Sheets that can cause errors. There's constantly knocks on the door with reps asking when their statements are going to be ready. It all kind of starts with the problem, right? Understanding the black and white version of the infomercial. And so with Captivate IQ, uh, what they do is with a push of a button, the sales leader can push the commission statements out to the reps without having to copy and paste any kind of spreadsheet. I think the first order of business when you're writing an email isn't to actually write an email. It's to really understand what happened before people gave you money and why it sucked specifically bad, and then what changes for the better. And you have to visualize that like an infomercial. Like you have to be yeah. able to see that very clearly. Otherwise, you're sort of barking at print. 
you're copying and pasting stuff, but you don't exactly know what it says. So I want to get with you, Kyle, in terms of what you do for your team to really help them get inside the head or the mind of the customer to understand what was life like before, you know, the black and white infomercial, that they're in the kitchen making french fries with a knife. It takes two and a half hours. The kitchen's a mess. Half the fries end up in the garbage. It takes two and a half hours to clean it up. Like what, what's the black and white and then what's the color version? What do you do to help people get to know the customer better? I love that. The infomercial visual is, yeah. is just perfect. Um, and we're dating ourselves. For anyone that's not old like me or maybe Kyle, Google these terms. Google Bob Ross. Uh, Google things that old people like to talk about. You'll see uh, chicken soup, Bob Ross, and maybe infomercial. As seen on TV. Right, and as seen on TV, correct. And Atrix. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's such a good point though because nobody ever purchases anything because the status quo is okay. You know, when was the last time you you Josh bought something where you're like, yeah, I have a perfectly fine microphone, but I'm just going to go buy another microphone. <laughs> Somebody needs to compel you to believe that there's a problem with your microphone. And this is, I, I believe, what you call the illumination question, which I think is just such a brilliant way to phrase it, um, and is really powerful because. The illumination question, and I can allow you to explain the principle, but what it does is it shows the recipient that you understand their day-to-day -day enough to understand the problem, and you understand what a solution might look like all in one question, and that's super, super powerful. And the way to do this, the way to understand your day-to-day -day of, of the recipient is to talk to them. It's not rocket science. I can pretty much guarantee you that somebody within your company is your target persona. Go interview them, go talk to them. We have lunch and learns with people that we cycle through. We sell to a lot of salespeople, sales operations people, and we bring them in to team meetings and we just grill them about what they're losing time to, the parts of their job that they hate, the parts of the job they love, um, the things that our product makes better for them, all those types of things. And that then becomes our messaging. We listen to podcasts, we listen to webinars where CROs are on panels and are talking about the challenges of their day to day. And we really listen. And, and that's what it really is all about. So these long emails that you get, and I get them as well, do you think the cause of that is that the reps are not getting the proper training and coaching to be able to understand the before and after? Because I never blame a salesperson or a sales development rep. It's always, to me, a management or leadership issue. And it seems to be rampant. What do you think the cause of this is? It's a good question, Josh, and I, I agree. I think that the problem is very rarely the individual rep, and I think the problem is almost always the author of the email, which is marketing a lot of times, sometimes it's leadership or management. And I think what happens is people are so proud of the product, service, whatever solution that they're selling, that they want to tell everybody about it. And they think that effective marketing is effective outbound selling, and it isn't. There is a very, very important distinction, as you just talked about. Outbound selling is about showing folks that you understand their problems and that you have a solution that can help them. And your marketing speak isn't always about that, because remember, what's on your website is for people who proactively come to your website, who already have a problem in mind, who already have some familiarity with you in all likelihood, and are trying to find out more, more information, longer form type information. And so that I think is, is what happens is people are so excited to say, here's all the things that my product can do. You know, you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall and you're seeing what will stick when really that's not the most effective thing for the recipient. So you really have to care about the recipient and the recipient has acute pains, short-term, intermediate, long-term. And if you can speak to those pains and show them that you care about them enough to try and help them solve it. That is winning messaging, and that's what most people don't do. They don't focus enough on them. They focus entirely on e on, on me or I or we. Yeah, it's a good point. I think it's called the endowment effect. There was this research study that was done a while back where they gave people an origami bird, a group of people. It was an experiment. And they said, what's the value of this origami bird? And everybody in the group said five bucks, six bucks. And they took another group of people, and they gave them instructions for how to make the origami bird, the exact same bird. But because they had to make it, when they asked them what it was valued at, it was like 12 bucks, 15 bucks. We tend to value the things that we sell. And therefore, we come across as biased and having commission breath because we have a vested interest because we think that we, what we have is so amazing. And to your point, the other person isn't really thinking about that right now. They're just trying to make progress. They're just trying to get from point A to point B and go home. So they're not living and breathing it. Um, to make matters even more complicated, because salespeople are comped on setting meetings and closing deals, they come across as 
salespeople that are comped on getting meetings and closing deals. (laughs) And when prospects smell that push, they oftentimes pull away. So we got to fight really hard when we start to craft our messages to be what I call neutral, to just like illuminate and shine a light on unbiased information so that people can decide for themselves if this is something they want to be able to look into. So I love that thought around length. The other thought I have around length too, and a lot of people are saying this now on, on LinkedIn as well, which is most of the communication that I get in my normal life is like on my phone, like a text message. Mm-hmm. I've been spending a lot of time on TikTok just for the heck of it. Okay, I like to see people dance, I'll admit it. You know, So I've been scrolling through that and that's like 30 seconds. Like WhatsApp is quick, text messaging is quick, Facebook Messenger is quick, like everything's fast in two sentences. And yet when we come to work, we see these three or four paragraph emails and there's this, this such a contrast between it that it creates such a cognitive load that we're like, I'll get to that later. Like whenever I see an email that's long, even if it's awesome, I just think to myself, I'll get to that later. Um, has that been your experience as well with regards to length? I 100%. And, and I think there you have to give yourself enough real estate to get your point across. And that's difficult to do, let's say, in one sentence, but entirely possible to do in four or five, six sentences um, and unnecessary for it to take 12 or 15 sentences. So there's there's a balance to strike. And I think that's I think your, your point is exactly right, Josh. And I think the other thing that contributes to um, unseemly length is people feeling like they need to be really formal in their outreach. And I think this is particularly true of college grads, fresh college grads who are getting used to the workplace and and they're so they're, they're, they refuse to use contractions, you know, like they say, I cannot wait to show you this product. And it's like, you say can't in real life, right? As a human, when you're talking to a human, like let's let's make things professional but not overly formal. And when people feel the need to be overly formal, it extends things unnecessarily. And so just that little simple bit of guidance, you know, write the way you speak, make it natural for you, the sender. That way, when you send that email, you should be able to use that email as a call script and it should sound like you. And if you're doing that well, you'll start to see your emails will start to get shorter and shorter. They'll get uh, more easy for you to digest, to read, to consume, the recipient to consume. And that I think is a really important point, writing the way you speak and not being so afraid. Like, I, And I had this problem when I was starting as an SDR where I was like, oh man, I'm reaching out to a CTO. This is a, this is a chief technology officer. I, I don't even know what they do, but I know that it's complicated and I know that I should be intimidated by them. And so when I first started doing outreach to them, I was really formal about it. You know, I wasn't like, dear sir and madam, how are you doing today? But I was very formal about it, all the the right marketing words and all the things. And I realized after having conversations with them that, believe it or not, they're humans and they like to communicate like humans. And so just talking to them like you're talking to somebody at a trade show is way more effective than trying to be overly formal and, and trying to um, speak to a persona, your concept of a persona that doesn't really exist. So senior people are just people. Talk to them like that and you'll have more success. Yeah, I think we, are, we, we feel like we have to be formal around CEOs or VPs yes. of sales because they're at work. And it's not so much like how you would say it, it's how your customer would say it like over coffee. And there's like a three-part litmus test that I like to talk about. I'd love to get your take on it too, which is when you read your email, put it through this lens, like this, this test. And test number one is, is it specific or vague? So I see a lot of emails, I'd love to get your take here too, Kyle, that are, that are vague. So they'll use like yeah. words like, we save time and money. We optimize your supply chain. And I, I know you've critiqued a lot of these on LinkedIn. And the problem with vague is everyone uses those words. So they don't mean anything to anybody. They just don't, right. they don't stand out versus specific words. And specific might sound, you know, something like, like this, you know, hey, Josh, um, how are you balancing the demands of having a work and family with training for a 144.6 Ironman race? That takes 20 plus hours a week to do. Like that's specific. And when you're specific, you can actually see yourself in it. And that's the difference, right? Can I see myself in it? And is it specific? That crispy language I find missing from a lot of emails. So that's litmus test number one when you're reading your email. Is it crispy or specific? Can I visualize it? Can I actually, I can see someone running 100, like doing 144 miles, 2.4 mile swim, 112 on the bike, 26. Like I could see that. I can't see optimized. I can't see streamlined. I can't see end to end. I can't see all these words that you're highlighting in your mock-ups, Kyle, on, on LinkedIn. So that's the first one. Then the second one to your point is, does it sound like something a customer would actually say over coffee? 
Right. A customer very rarely, I've never heard one, maybe there's exceptions, says I'd like to optimize and streamline my supply chain with a 360 degree platform. They just don't talk like that. And that's a disconnect, right? And so is it specific? And does it sound like something that somebody would say? And can I observe it? Like, can I actually see it in my head? And sometimes if you read your emails and you can't do that, something's wrong. You might not know how to fix it, but it should be a red flag. What's your take on that, Kyle? It's so it's so well said, Josh. And I'm glad you used the 360 degree example because <laughs> I still, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't it, know. Please. I don't know what that means. This is what I tell people when they say that. This is how I rewrite that for people. I say, see all your stuff in one place. Yeah. That's what I say. Because that's what it, that's what you're saying, right? Like, see all your stuff in one place. They're like, yeah. I go, just say that then. Like, yeah. Just say that. I go, how'd, they go, how'd you find out that language? I go, somebody told me that. Like the 360 degree thing, that's a word that was made up by somebody. Right. Um, but again, because everyone says it, it doesn't mean anything. Now, that's not to say there's not certain lingo. Like triathletes have their own lingo. They, sure. they, they have their own vocabulary and words to describe things. You know, they go on these things called bricks, which is a triathlete term. I'm not saying you don't use the lingo, but it's these words that are vanilla that don't mean anything. Increase conversion rates, increase sales, save time, save money. Those are all these sort of vanilla words. And I know you've talked a lot about this too, Kyle, in your mock-ups. Yeah. And for us, the example, you know, for, for Clary, we are a forecasting revenue operations type solution. And version A, uh, you know, the the new SDR borrowing language from Clary.com, if they're writing to a chief revenue officer, they might say something like, how do you know, or is your revenue predictable enough to forecast in quarter and out quarter? And it's like, okay, um, what? Versus the human way to say it that passes your test of visualizing to the say it over coffee is, are you going to make your number next quarter? <laughs> How do you know like, you're going to make your number next quarter? Right, 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 right. Exactly. And it's that kind of thing that is, those are the insights that you get from the, the ways that we mentioned before, Josh, talking to the people internally that are the users of your product, going to their webinars, going to listening to their podcasts, and just trying to understand their lingo. As you said, it's important that you speak their language. And it's equally important that you don't only speak your own language because that's a really easy trap to fall into where you say, hey, smarter people than me have wordsmithed the heck out of this. I'm just going to go and do what they tell me to do. It's like, no, no, you are a person with a brain who is hired for to use your brain. And you do that by being strategic, being thoughtful, um, being personal with your outreach. And I think you, the principles you outlined are spot on. There's an email, I want to read you just a little bit of it from a, an SDR um, named, I'll just call him John because I don't know if he wants me to give, give his name, but he did a real great job of this, right? So his first sentence was this, um, one of the things that people working in payables hate is admin work. Stuff like collecting from your publishers, banking information, cross-border payments, financial controls, etc. Like that right there. Even if you don't know anything about what that means, that's real specific to that person. And he's using like human language. Like, so one of the things you could try in your sentence is one of the things blank hate is X. And so Josh, one of the things people with podcast, podcast hosts hate is editing. Stuff like removing ums and ahs, EQ levels, normalizing audio, creating show notes, et cetera. Like I'm going to read that because that's my world when I host a podcast. So that's a great way to maybe start an email in a specific way around a specific problem. So I love that advice, Kyle. So what are other some of the other things that you're seeing in terms of areas to be improved other than length? And we've talked about vagueness and being specific and getting to know the customer. What else are you seeing? Yeah, I want to one comment on the email that you just read. The use of the word stuff is awesome. <laughs> it's a human it's a normal human word and I think, you know, 99% of new fresh college grad SDRs would hate, they, they would be so scared to use a word like that because it's so normal. So anyway, I just want to call that out. Yeah, good, good call out. The, uh, for, for me, the other, the other thing that the theme that I'm seeing is that the way that people are doing intros to these emails really is suboptimal. Um, you'll see a lot of themes where it's a couple of the, the sentences that, you know, just are, are total eye rolls. You know, I hope this note finds you well. Yeah. But to me, the one that's most irritating <laughs> is, hey, I noticed you were the VP of Revenue Growth and Enablement <laughs> at Clary, and I thought I'd reach out. Yeah. And I'm like, there's not, there's no compelling reason. You Basically, what that means to me 
is you did a search on Sales Navigator. You looked for a couple keywords. I was one of the hundreds of results in that keyword search and you mass blasted me an email. That's what it means. And whether or not that's the case, that's just what I as the recipient of that read from it because there's no actual compelling reason for you to reach out. You noticing my profile on LinkedIn, you seeing that I have a certain title is not a reason for you to reach out. So skip that line entirely. And an easy pivot that I recommend people make is, it's very similar to what the emails that you just read, Josh. It's sales leaders like yourself, problem, solution. And that way you recognize that you know, they're, they're in the role that you're doing research about, but you're specifically calling out a, a problem that you know they have, and that is your compelling reason to reach out. So what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I love that. So there's, there's so many ways to write a good first sentence, and I agree with you. The first sentence is really important because when the email lands in the inbox, people see three things. They see your name, can't do anything about that, you're a stranger. Um, they see the subject line, and then they see the first few letters, characters, words of your email. Um, I love what you just said there too, Kyle. But another thing that you can do is, and I'll just do this right here on the podcast so you guys can see an example of this because I, I like to be practical like you. So I'm going to go, I'm going on the, the Captivate IQ website and I'm going to go into the customer success stories. And I just pulled up one for Gong, right? And so what I do is I'm just going to scroll down here and right here under challenges, it says business operations manager, Albert Wong was able to do this thing. He's able to calculate commissions 60 times faster than he was before. He's doing it in minutes instead of hours, right? So you could actually start your email off by saying something like, Albert Wong, business operations manager at Gong, is able to calculate and run commission statements in minutes instead of hours. If you'd like, I can show you how he's doing that. And then in the PS line, to your point, you could actually include something like, thought it made sense to reach out to you given that you've got a lot of experience doing X, Y, and Z. Boom. You know, so, something like that, you know, so you can actually, instead of you having to think of what to write, go let your customer write it. Meaning, go to your customer's testimonial and see if you can't find something from them to use. Even if you started off with Kyle's, you know, one of the, one of the things that, you know, people paying commission, you know, VPs of sales hate is commission time, manual commission stuff, stuff like A, B, C, and D. With Gong or with, with Captivate, you click a button and you pay the commissions out in seconds within minutes. Thought you might be interested too. Like that kind of thing is going to start with something that's personal, but not really personalized. And there's a little bit of a difference there. I'd love to get your take on this because that'll lead into the next section of this podcast. The difference between personal and personalized Let's talk a little bit about that. A lot of reps feel the pressure to personalize, which is why I think you're seeing so many emails starting with, Josh, I noticed that you're the VP of sales at X because they feel it's checking the box. Right. But just to your point, because you're saying that doesn't necessarily mean that matters to me. That doesn't help me do right. anything better. It doesn't really hit because everyone's using that. So people think personalization is the means to an end. Um, I think that what people care about is only two things. They want to move away from something they don't want or towards something they do want. Yeah. And they want a different idea that they haven't thought of before. And so this idea of can we find things that people don't want in this subgroup? So all triathletes that have families that are training for 20 hours a week to do an Ironman are all going to have the same type of struggles. They're going to be balancing work-life family. They're, they're going to be sleeping in on Sundays, so they're going to lose their Sundays. You know, all the people in that group are going to have that problem. So what you could say in the email in the first sentence is what triathletes hate is 20 hours a week of training. Stuff like losing their Sundays, 10 hour rides on the weekends, and not being able to spend time with their families, and not being able to spend time with their kids. Right? That's something that's gonna be personal, but it's not really personalized to every individual person. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at as well, Kyle, this idea of understanding the group of people that you're selling to and what types of struggles they have in common. Exactly. And I, the way that we think about it is there's a difference between a persona and a person. And just dropping that A is really important. Now, the research you do, the understanding you have about the pro your product or your service, your solution, and the, the things it solves matters to the persona. Yes, 100%. I need to know why a VP of sales will care about an automated and more efficient way to roll up their <laughs> forecast and, and provide accuracy and all that. Yes, I under, have to understand the business problems. But on the as a person... Who is this VP of sales? He's a triathlete. 
he knows, hey, hey, Josh, as a triathlete, you know that nothing ruins your race more than poor visibility. <laughs> the same is true with your sales forecast. If you don't see the road ahead, you don't know where you're going to land. You don't know how you're going to end the race. If you're interested in learning about how VPs of sales like you are managing their forecast, be happy to show you. Right. And that's the kind of thing that makes you check both boxes, the persona box and the person box is the research you do, the personalization you do tied into and segues really nicely into your value prop. And to me, that's the key to the castle. And that's what really true personalization is. I agree. And I also think the key to the castle is actually having an idea that's actually meaningfully different. What I mean by that too is I get a lot of emails that will say something like, we're going to help you train for the triathlon faster and cross the finish line. But I'm already doing that. Yeah. What is it that you know that I don't know? So with regards yeah. to the triathlon example, what I'm doing is spending 20 hours a month, 20 hours a week training. That sucks because, and there's always a because, sucks because I lose my Sundays. My relationship with my wife is strained. I got to eat dinner at four o'clock. I don't want to be around anybody when I'm done biking. Like there's all sorts of implications of when you twist the knife there, right? Yeah. And so if you have a meaningfully different idea, if you're a triathlon coach that can actually help me cross the finish line, but only spend 10 hours a week training, that's something that's meaningfully different. I think a lot of times people don't know what that big idea is when they're reaching out. They're saying, yeah. I'm going to help you value prop cross the finish line. I'm already doing that. I'm already getting the job done. What is it that you're bringing that's meaningfully different? And I think that's another area I wanted to get your perspective on, Kyle. And I think you're kind of alluding to this in your critiques, which is, why should I care? Because I feel like I'm already doing this. The value prop is not enough. It's this idea of meaningfully different. Like, I'll give you another example that just happened recently. I was using Gmail. I love Gmail. I've been using it forever. And a buddy of mine, uh, Jason Fried, who's the CEO, founder of Basecamp, came out with this new uh, product called Hey, which is a new email. He's telling me about it. I'm like, what is this thing? He's like, it's an email client. I already got Gmail. He goes, well, I got, hey, it's going to be 99 bucks a year. I go, I would never pay for email. Like email's free. Why would I ever buy this? And he said, email's not free. To which I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're paying with your privacy. Mm -hmm. In Gmail, not sure if you know this, but what happens is it scans your emails for receipts and information and sells that personal data to advertisers. That's how they make money. That's why it's free for you. If your privacy is worth more than 99 bucks, we've got something that you might be interested in. He's not really selling hay. He's selling this idea of what's not safe about how I'm getting the job done today, this big idea, right? And I think that's something that's missing for a lot of people because they're talking about faster email clients. They're talking about zero inbox. They don't have this big idea. I want to get with you, Kyle. Like, what are you seeing that? And what can we do? to be able to help people understand what their big idea is, what's meaningfully different. Because if you don't have that, it's, I'm gonna get the email and say, I'm already doing that. Nobody's sitting around not training for a race. Nobody's sitting around not checking email. Nobody's sitting around not forecasting. Everyone's getting it done today. What is it that you know that they don't know that could hurt them? What's your take on that, Kyle? It's spot on, Josh, and it's really hard to do. So I don't wanna pretend like it's an easy thing. It's gonna take, coordination at the strategic level of your company to really, really dial this in. And it's not to say that individual sellers can't do this because they can, but working with your company and, and with your product folks and whomever to really understand the differentiators is, is helpful here. Um, and you can go one of two ways. You can go one way, which is pretty universal, which is on the, again, more of a personal level. So this won't be universal across everybody you reach out to. Um, the concept will be, but the phrasing will be different. And hopefully your product or service is saving people time in some way and giving them time back to do something that is either more uh, valuable, that they perceive to be more valuable at work or something outside of work that they really like spending time on. And if you can give people their nights and weekends back, if I can tell people that our forecasting solution will give them their Sundays back so that they're not being browbeaten by their sales management for you know the entire weekend and they buy it with a click of a button, have their forecast roll up done, that is impactful and that is, to your point, Josh, meaningfully different. I think that's really, really important. The other thing that you can do is you can tie your company's solution to broader strategic initiatives that companies run, and that is differentiating. For example, we're not just, Clary isn't just providing a revenue operations platform. We're providing you a lens into your broadest revenue initiatives. Are you trying to go up market? Are you trying to go down market? Are you introducing a new product line? Are you expanding geographies? Are you preparing for IPO? 
Any of these things are much, much more strategic, longer term and more valuable. And if I can tie our solution to this strategic initiative that helps you check this long-term goal that really affects the bottom line of your business, I don't have to get mired in the feature wars with our competitors because I've shown you that I understand your broader initiatives and I'm aligning across the entire executive team with our solution. And so that's another way that you can up-level and show that you're uniquely different by just making them think differently about the value that your service is providing. Yeah, and, and something else too, and Kyle, you mentioned this earlier, but it does bear repeating is to simply interview some customers yeah, and just ask them one question. Like, what sucked about getting this job done before you started working with us? Why did that suck? And then what changed for the better after? And just start a doc called the Lingo Library. And they're going to give you that, well, it was taking me 25 hours. I was losing my Sundays. I almost got a divorce. I was eating at three o'clock. And now I have, a, I have a life. And I'm still able to cross the race, finish it. But I'm actually able to get my Sundays back and spend time with my family. And you can kind of get this contrast. Like, it's about, it's about the contrast. Yeah. It's, about, it's about the contrast. And so to the extent that you can understand that contrast, you're going to be mean, you're going to have the meaningfully different idea. Then it's a question of, well, how do I communicate it? We've been talking a little bit about that on this podcast. How do I communicate it in a way that will stack the odds in my favor for starting a conversation, uh, which is the next topic I wanted to discuss with you. Should we be asking people for time in an email? I know you kind of coach on this a little bit. I've been dabbling into your posts and critique. A lot of people asking as their call to action uh, you know, can, do you want to meet Tuesday or Wednesday for 45 minutes, for 30 minutes? What's your take, Kyle? Absolutely not on the first touch. Definitely not. Don't ask for time. You haven't earned it. You haven't done enough to show them that you understand them and their world well enough to justify a, an expenditure of time on their part. 15 minutes to me, 30 minutes to me, an hour to me is hugely valuable. And so just me, I don't, I, I will never just take time out of my day with, with a stranger <laughs> And I'm more, I'm more sympathetic to the SDR cause, the AE cause than most. And I still will require some sort of back and forth with the sender before I finally acquiesce to taking that time. And so for me, the recommendation, and this is stolen straight from Gong Labs um, and Devin Reed over there, at, at their team did a study on this to prove it out, that the more effective calls to action, especially in your first couple outbound emails, are interest-based and curiosity-based. And I love the call to action of curious to learn more question mark. And if you just leave it at that, you're inviting a response and you're earning a conversation and you're earning the right to then prove to them that it is going to be an effective use of their time. But how about you, Josh? What's your yeah, take it's almost on like, that? It's almost like you're, you're, you want to gauge interest and start a conversation rather than book a meeting. And I think this gets back to intent. Yeah. You know, so many people are comped on booking meetings that our intent is to book a meeting with everyone. Right. And the truth is, that you can't control how people respond to your email. And there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to respond to your email. But when your intent is to schedule meetings with everyone, you end up sounding like this, right? You end up sounding like it on a phone because you think it's your job is to persuade and to convince and to control others. You can't create motivation. You can only align with it. So I think that's where it's coming from. And I agree with you, these sort of softer calls to action that are meant to gauge interest and start a conversation in a lower friction way. Some of the other ones that I've used um, is, you know, uh, so if you started off the email, you know, hey, uh, 12 weeks away till, you know, Cozumel, um, how are you balancing work family with 20 hours a week of training? Um, other triathletes that are training for the race are getting the job done with only 10 hours a week, getting their Sundays back, call to action, want to know how they're doing it? You know, something like that, you know, it's, it's worth a conversation, want to know how they're doing it, sound interesting. That, those, that's exactly it. These kind of softer calls to action that make it a little bit easier. You could also, you know, send people something you could say, you could offer like, um, you know, uh, if you'd like, I can send you how, because that's even lower because the yep. thought of meeting with a salesperson is scary because I know salespeople are going to try to get me to buy something. That's just been my experience. So to the extent that you could lower that friction a little bit and just get the conversation started, I think you're going to be in a much better place. So I, I love that. That's a great, great, great tip. So Kyle, we've said, you've said a lot here, man. You've said a lot. You've said a lot. If people want to get better at writing emails, they want to get better at copywriting. They want to improve in this area. And they're of the type that want to get better on their own. They don't need to wait for a manager to teach them. They don't need to take a class. But they want to get better at copywriting, which I think is a million-dollar skill that is never going to change. Yeah. What do you recommend people do to get better at knowing how to write words that invite people to care? 
Yeah, man, this is this is a long one. It's not going to happen overnight, but it, it does just require an investment in yourself and an investment in time. And what I recommend people do first is write something long. Write something that is as comprehensive as you think it needs to be to hit on every key point that you, you that you're trying to get across. Whether this is business related or it's not, if it's something in your personal life, just write a long letter and then ruthlessly edit it down. And be really honest with yourself. Is this sentence adding value? What is the purpose of this sentence? Why did I write it? And and so I'll often do this when I'm trying to formulate a new idea. And certainly when I'm posting on LinkedIn is my posts originally are, you know, 2,500 characters. And I'm chopping here and there and I'm taking that out and I'm changing words around. And I'm just being really uh, conscientious of how things flow. And the flow, and there's some rhythm, and there's a lyricism that's really important when you write. And the litmus test for me is, and we talked about this before, but if you read it out loud, and it and it sounds good, and you can sort of feel the rhythm as you're reading it, then you've checked the box. And so if you can find that, that point where you know you got all your thoughts down on paper, and now you know that you scrapped the things that are unessential, and now you're reading it out loud, and you're ensuring that it flows properly, and it has the right rhythm, then you're in really good shape. The other really important point here is that it has to be readable. And I know we're on the same page here where when you get a block of text uh, in an email, it's an instant delete. Like break that email up, make sure it's, there's some white space. People are going to skim. You got to be okay with people skimming. They're not going to read every word. And you want your key points to be highlighted in their own paragraph, in their own sentence. And so if you can get in the habit of starting in a longer form way, paring it down, reading it out loud to ensure that there's a good rhythm to how it how it actually sounds... Uh, and then you can space it out so that the human brain can digest it quickly. That I think is a really good place to start. Awesome. And then I got one tip as well in the style of Bob Ross. Like if you want to get better at playing chess, you like work with a grandmaster, you study, like you hang out with a person. You want to get better at selling real estate. You work with someone that's really good at selling real estate. And if you want to get better at writing cold emails, you study cold emails that have gotten positive responses. And there's tons of examples of those on LinkedIn bunch of stuff in my guide, a bunch of stuff that Kyle's doing. Start collecting emails with positive responses and start to study the structure, not the actual words, but the structure. Um, I do this all the time. I study ads. Anytime there's an yeah. add-on that catches my eye or a headline, I'm not so worried about the actual ad as I am the structure. So one of them was uh, on BuzzFeed, uh, do girls at a bar get your tongue tied? That got my, even though I've been married forever, I'm not going to bars, like it caught my attention of all the headlines. I saved it and I had to do a webinar with outreach and I pulled it out and I go, do prospects get you tongue-tied when they raise objections? It's great. It was great, right? But I wouldn't have, like, I, I just kind of stole the headline. So this is an old Dan Kennedy, famous copywriter trick, which is to just study and save emails with positive responses and sort of model what you're doing after those responses. Like you, you can steal, it's okay. It's one of the best ways to learn, I think, modeling it from what other people are doing. No shame in it whatsoever. Everybody is, we're building off each other. Awesome. So Kyle, if people want to know more about you, should they just start emailing you and then they will get free coaching? Is that how it works? Is that what you're doing all day now? Nah, I, you know, once this plague is behind us, Josh, and I have my weekends back, <laughs> I, I maybe will be a little more judicious with my time, but uh, feel free to give me a follow on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the only social channel I'm active on. I'm more than happy. If you send me a note, I will respond to you. Um, it, you know, I, I can only add as much value as I can. If it's an email that's not for my persona or outside of my industry, I don't know how valuable I can be, but please send it my way. I'll do my best to help you out. And Kyle, I do want to thank you very deeply. You are one of the few individuals on LinkedIn that is providing actionable advice. You're spending a tremendous amount of time really helping people at a detailed level, not just swooping and pooping around the internet. And the world could use more people like you, Kyle. So thank you so much for helping the community and for all the salespeople out there. Appreciate that, Josh. The feeling is very much mutual.